Countries in Crime features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Ron Clark is a criminology legend, the originator of the situational approach to preventing crime and co-developer with Derek Cornish of the Rational Choice Perspective. A critic of mainstream criminology, he nonetheless was awarded the prestigious Stockholm Prize in Criminology in 2015. We sat down in his kitchen and chatted about his career. I'm Jerry Ratcliffe, and this is Reducing Crime. Please excuse this episode being a bit inside baseball, but I had a rare chance to sit down with Ron Clark. He discusses his background in the episode, so I won't dwell at length here. But basically, Ron Clark is best known for his development of the theory and application of situational crime prevention, and co-development of the rational choice perspective on crime with his friend Derek Cornish. He's the author or joint author of more than 300 books, monographs and papers, most with a strong practical bent. He was among the first to realise that the secret to crime prevention wasn't often unrealistic broad societal changes, but the careful and detailed analysis of the microenvironments associated with crime, followed with targeted and tailor-made interventions. It's been written that those of us who know him know that he is scathing of criminological papers that are inaccessible and self-indulgent, and this is true. He has no time for mainstream criminology's lack of practical application. I must have challenged a little bit of Ron in a similar message when I gave the annual Jerry Lee lecture earlier this year. Given the similarity of the message, I've posted a link to that video on the podcast's page by Ron Clark's episode, but you can basically find my Jerry Lee lecture online by googling it. It says something about the influence of Ron's work that, even though he can be a little dismissive of mainstream academic criminology, he was still awarded criminology's highest honour, the Stockholm Prize, in 2015. Now in his 80s, he retired some years ago to Sanibel Island in Florida. However, his home was devastated by Hurricane Ian in 2022, and Ron and his wife Sheila temporarily relocated back to New Jersey. I arranged to have dinner with them both, but first took advantage of the opportunity to sit down with him in their kitchen for a chat. Just me, Ron, and as you'll hear, their dog Pedro. You've never been that fussed about the whole academic thing, really, have you? Not really, no. I mean, my uh, academic experience has been so different from most people's anyway. I escaped all the rubbish about having to get tenure and promotion and all that. That sort of just fell into place. I didn't spend a lot of time worrying about that. Much of the academic stuff is, it's got to be done and we've got to write those detailed papers, but they are really rather boring, aren't they? I think that's an understatement. I think if you look at most practitioners, you ask them to read an academic journal article. I think they'd sooner take a bullet in the chest with a bulletproof vest on. You know? yes. It's like, go on, just test Father Gun at me. I would sooner do that than read an academic journal article. Yeah. And I feel their pain because I'm kind of the same, you know. You read the introduction and it's okay. You read a bit of the literature, it's okay. And then before you know it, you flip a page and it's a pile of equations. Yes. I can't understand most of them. In fact, I do skip that stuff and just look at the intro and the conclusions and that's about it. It was funny, I was talking to Ken Pease just the other day. Yeah. <laughs> and what was really interesting is that you and Gloria Laycock and Ken Pease all started in the psychology route. Yes, we were, all of us. So is it something about starting with psychology that you then transitioned to being more practically oriented people? 
I think has actually got quite a lot to do with working for the Home Office, which okay. all three of us did. I, I'm pleased I worked with the Home Office because there was always the emphasis on being useful and that really meant being practical. And so I think that was a very good discipline. It helped me a lot to uh, be focused on being practical. You were raised in Africa to begin with. You had an education in Africa until you were 11 and then came to the UK and went to school. But you started doing the psychology side. So an academic route didn't initially really appeal to you? I was a victim of the practice in England of specialising children at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And I was pushed into doing arts, you know, it's either arts or science. And I shouldn't have been pushed into arts because most of that art stuff bored me terribly. You know, like Latin, I had to do a lot of Latin. I got taught how to sing a song in Latin. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've found that immensely useful in my life. <laughs> in fact, it, it began earlier than the home office. My first academic job, even before I got a PhD, was in an approved school, training schools right. for delinquents. And this is after you got your bachelor's degree? No, after I did my master's. I did a master's degree in clinical psychology at uh, the Maudsley. Okay, the hospital in London. Yes. Yeah. I got into psychology in order to escape the label of being an arts person. Right. Um, and I found it generally a lot more interesting than what I've been doing. The job I got was externally funded by the Home Office. They wanted more practical research being done on the schools. They had had research going on, the usual stuff, academics coming in and getting a sample of delinquent kids to do some puzzles and stuff. A, a lot of that stuff's kind of nonsense, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's so much driven by the environment, not by the individual kids, I think. was, And you were starting to get a glimpse of that, weren't you? I learned it too late because I, I spent the first few years of my job in the approved schools being a clinical psychologist and it didn't work. I did all right by that. I, I got quite a lot of published papers in the British Journal of Criminology and so on. But it, it wasn't very interesting really what I was doing. It was basically standard clinical psychology work and it didn't get me anywhere. But I, purely by chance, I found some home office statistics that were routinely kept that no one had told me about on absconding. And um, I was really surprised at the very large differences in absconding rates between different schools. And I thought, my goodness, this is interesting. But at that point, I had just about completed my time at Kingswood Schools and uh, I was writing my PhD at that point, which was mostly clinical psychology stuff. I mean, basically the simple problem was trying to find any differences between boys who ran away and those who didn't, in the hope this would teach you what kind of treatment to provide. And the fact is, I found almost nothing that differed the two groups. So all of that was wasted, really. Except at the end, I discovered that there was tremendous variation in the number of absconders from different schools. 
which was an eye-opener to me. Because the kids were all the same pretty much in the schools, were Pretty they? much the same. Close enough, right? And they were also mostly allocated to go to the schools nearest their home. So it wasn't anything about their specific characteristics that put them in different schools. They were pretty much all the same. Yeah. But the schools had very differing absconding rates. And one of the main sets of variables were opportunity variables that I, you know, that I could measure. And that led me to think more and more about the effect on people's behavior of their immediate environment. But this must have gone against pretty much how most of British criminology was thinking at the time. Yes, it did. And pretty much how I think most of British criminology currently thinks, to be honest. It's true, it yeah. is. So why do you think nobody had paid really any attention to the situational yeah. factors? Why, why was this just not a thing? I don't know. It's an interesting question, actually. Well, mostly the people working in these fields, people who were like psychiatrists or psychologists, right. and they were focused on individual differences. Right. There wasn't a body of people that was looking at the environments. There's, there still isn't. But it still feels kind of niche within academia and criminology, yes, so doesn't it? it? Uh, and I was actually a bit frustrated by all of this because I thought, this is important. And why are we being channeled into doing this individual differences stuff? Because increasingly, as you were finding, that it's really difficult to get people to change their individual motivations and drivers. Yeah. I mean, I know they're finding interesting studies, but is it anything that's really practically valuable? Mm. I often just think, oh my God, what a waste of money. People being trained to do this stuff and believing it's useful, but in fact it's mostly not useful at all. It's hard to pull out the practical benefits that really kind of say, if we do this, there's going to be less engagement in yes. crime. Yes. I, I should be more engaged with that, but I don't really see it. I, and I found that frustrating. I thought, you know, for goodness sake. I thought, what a waste of money that people have been trained just to do this. And why aren't their specialties looking at the environment and the situations? You moved to the Home Office in 1967, and the Home Office Research Unit, which became the Research and Planning Unit. Yes. And there were a lot of people working in criminology. What were most people working on? That was a big department at the time, wasn't it? It was a very big department very primitive kinds of researches was simply finding out how many people in the prisons had tonsillitis or something. <laughs> right, there you go, yeah. as you do. It was all driven by that sort of bean counting. The studies were boring, really boring. Had no practical value or terribly badly written? or No, they weren't badly written. They, they were quite well written, actually, because they, they had no big intellectual questions they were asking. It sounds all very safe in government. Yes, and basically the research unit was left to its own devices as long as it didn't rock the boat. But then you became the head of it, didn't you? I became the head of it, yes. I'd always stressed to people outside in the academic world that everything we did was published. Like it or lump it, it was published? Yes. Mm -hmm because the major criticism was all we did was serve government. And I was very keen to show that that wasn't just what we were doing. 
we were asking more basic questions. Uh, the basic questions were the ones that really were worthwhile. As I was moving up the stream in the Home Office, I was promoted fairly rapidly. Understandable, you're a smart bloke. <laughs> I see a future if you keep this up, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I actually got more and more irritated by the insistence of people outside the, the Home Office that it was all just bean counting. A lot of it was. But the stuff I was interested in was more basic, I believed. I found it very irritating that outside academics couldn't see this. Right. So I found that increasingly patronizing. Uh, that was a, sorry, we can't do anything with the dog barking. <laughs> Shut up, Pedro. What was the solution to that? Is it just academic arrogance that everybody thinks whatever they're doing is the right thing to do? Some of it was that, yes. And also, they were determined to believe that what we were doing was fairly useless because it was simply serving the system, not questioning the system. There's no merit in then trying to improve the system and actually make it more efficient, more fairer, none of that? There wasn't at that time. There probably would be now. Right. There was a lot of emphasis on effectiveness that was measured by reconvictions, which is fair enough, you know. If, if you can't do the basic job of reforming people, what's it doing? When you mention reforming people then, what did you conclude from it all at the end of it? Is it easy? Can people be reformed? Yes, you can change people's behaviour, but by very simple ideas actually. For instance, absconding was very much favoured by opportunity. But if it was easy to abscond, then you got more absconders. What annoyed me was that the academics didn't see that this was useful to point out repeatedly that opportunity really did matter. And I did lots of studies which showed that. And I carried on doing opportunity studies while I was in the Home Office more generally. So, for example, the work I did on steering locks, which is called a mundane now, but at that time it was new to show that steering locks really did reduce car theft quite dramatically. It's amazing that academia doesn't pick on this chance to be practically beneficial to society. Yes. That's the part I find so strange because I look at current academia and there is still all of this emphasis on, you know, root causes. It's all about, yeah. you know, you'll only make people safe if we improve the education system, reduce unemployment, reduce poverty. And those are good things do. Yeah. But has anybody not been trying to do that for the last hundred years? Yes. There are other ways to reduce crime that are affordable and practical. Mm. And well, I, I think in the long run that message has got through, but I don't think it's really got through to academics. That emphasis on opportunity, which I pushed a lot in lots of different contexts, is the real reason that the crime rate has dropped so much. Uh, at least for the things we can measure. Yeah. I got the sense knowing you over the years that you've never really felt that you found your home within academia, intellectually. No, I, d I didn't. I was a fish out of water, really. It didn't suit me particularly. The only thing that made it pleasant was that, of course, I got to know a lot more people who were a bit like me. The ECHA group, for instance. Right, the environmental criminologists, yeah. Yeah. I read somewhere that some of the work that you 
started to identify with is things like the architect Oscar Newman's work yes. on defensible space and C. Ray Jeffrey's work on crime prevention through environmental design. That strikes me as really practical work, but it's still very much peripheral to how much of criminology is, certainly oh, is taught it, in the United yes, States. It is, and it's frustrating that criminologists I mean, I, I find the American Society of Criminology quite a frustrating organization. It doesn't emphasize the things that you can change. I found academic criminology really disappointing and irritating. Well, there's a lot of complaining about public criminology and pub the public not listening to criminologists. Mm. And I'm rather like yourself, sitting a bit on the outside going, no, I understand why the public don't pay any attention. You haven't got anything useful, practically useful to say. No, it hasn't. Yes. And it's irritating because stuff, for instance, on opportunity is so clear in the relationship between the unwanted behavior and the actions you've taken. But you started to find some collegiality. Yes. So you worked a lot with Marcus Felsen. Yes, with Marcus and, well, Goldstein, actually. I got to know him quite early on in my academic career. I met him once. Lovely man. Yes, he was, yes. And uh, Kelling, I got to know quite well. Yeah, George Kelling's work's been very much misunderstood, I think. I think he's shouldered some of the blame for zero-tolerance policing, which bears very little relationship to, to, what, to what his ideas that he came up with. Absolutely, it doesn't. Anyway, I, to get back to the point I was trying to make <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. earlier, no, no, it's perfectly all right, was that um, I thought that what we were doing in that small group of people in the home office that I worked with, I thought this was much more interesting and useful than what was normally being done in criminology. Right. Because you could show very direct results between opportunity-reducing measure and the thing you were trying to control. Right. You started to really develop and push situational crime prevention. Mm. Yes. And I think you single-handedly put it on the map. You were able to fund and drive studies. I mean, I just wonder where we would be if you hadn't had that opportunity heading up that unit in the home office to be able to do that and had the freedom to do that. It seemed wonderfully opportune. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I think it was very useful because I was able to fund stuff that bore out these ideas that were, um, by people who were not necessarily in the home office. Was it easy to find academics who thought like this? Well, I found them, but in some strange places. <laughs> <laughs> the pub down the road, <laughs> Ken Pease, <laughs> yes. Gloria Laycock. And Barry Poyner, he was an architect, but he was very, very practical. Gloria? I mean, Gloria was already in the home office when I got there. Mm -hmm. But she was Gloria in, Laycock, yeah. in prison. She was in the prison department. Yeah, we better clarify that. She was in the prison department, not in prison, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I met her on the street one day in, in Horsfrey Road and talk to her a bit and she said that she was very fed up with her job found it very boring so I said why don't you come and ask for a transfer to the research unit because I think you would find some of the things going on there much more useful and interesting than what you're being asked to do at the moment right and she fitted in very well with the with the times 
her PhD was on escapes from prison, which fitted the absconding work and... The opportunity structure? Yes. Yeah. Do you think that's important for people to find an intellectual community? You know, because I, I know that you know, we still have the group of environmental criminologists, but it's a relatively small group compared yeah. to much of mainstream criminology. And I just think it's really tough. I'm lucky to be at Temple where we have a, a few people, but I think it's really tough for people who are just sort of toiling away in this field on their own, yeah. surrounded by more traditional criminologists yes. who kind of don't get it. Exactly. The, the also, the sad thing is that some of these people who were very clever, many of them, retreat into doing more technical papers. And uh, I've noticed this with quite a few people who, not Ken. Ken Pease, yeah. Ken is quite different. But quite a few of the bright young people retreat into doing technical stuff. A lot of statistics. Yes. Not a lot of practical value, yeah. That's because of the pressures on them to produce academic papers. Yeah, the, the tenure system and keeping the employment, and in the UK, the, the research evaluations that take place on a regular basis, that, that does drive a lot of churning stuff out. Yes. You know, I, I speak, spend a lot of time with practitioners. They don't know any of this stuff. No. It doesn't get on their radar at all. No, it doesn't. In the end, though, you still found a home in academia. You ended up moving across the pond to here to the United States. Yeah. Well, Mike Huff and I spent a lot of time on police effectiveness. We wrote several papers on it, mostly fairly critical. Right. Can I ask, what was the reception like for that? Because there wasn't much police effectiveness evaluation research taking place at all. No. And what there was was mostly American. Right. So we wrote a couple of papers saying, if you look at the overall evidence on effectiveness of police, it's mostly American and it's mostly showing that much of it is not very effective. And we kept pushing that line, that they've got to do things differently. Oh, you must have been making friends then. Yes. <laughs> Especially... You still kept a job? <laughs> Well, I actually annoyed my bosses very much because I insisted on publishing one of these papers. I think it was called Police Effectiveness. We got it published, but it was a big struggle. It was rewritten maybe 10 or 11 times, trying to deal with the objections of various departments in the Home Office. Right. Eventually, they agreed to publishing the thing because I was so insistent on it but they did their best to put it out at a time when it wouldn't be noticed. I think it was published on a bank holiday weekend or something like that. There you like go. That. That's how to do it. Yep, everybody's down at the beach. That's how they know to do it. But the trouble was that Thatcher got in on her increase the police numbers. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, yes. yep. And she came in and this report had just been published and uh, there was a lot of irritation with me for having pushed it so hard right. but basically it shows that what the police are doing is not going to be improved by having more police you've got to change how they do things and so this is the first term of margaret thatcher's conservative government very pro-police at the time yes just in terms of simplistic raw pro-police not really thinking about effectiveness yes was that a career killer for you? Yes, it was. Oh, blimey. Because there was a big fight, as, you, as I've just said. 
And at the end of it all, we got it published. But my boss said to me, don't try that again, Ron. And I thought, well, I am going to try it again because we can't keep producing things that don't ruffle any feathers. Because otherwise we just do the same old, same old. Same old, same old. And as somebody once said to me in policing, it's all right, you can fail in policing as long as you fail conventionally. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, I thought, oh my God. And I kept getting offers of jobs in America because at that time, early 80s, there was a, a lot of criminal justice departments starting up, very few senior people working in them. And um, I got a lot of letters saying, you know, if you ever would like to move to the States, come and join our little school, blah, 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 blah. And I got one of these letters at the same time that Faulkner had said to me, don't try that again, Ron. Right. This was from Temple, actually. Yep. You came to Temple University for a bit. Yep. And I uh, went over to Temple one weekend got offered the job on the spot, accepted, and went back and resigned from the Home Office. Did you bother telling Sheila at any time a part of this? (laughs) Well, not really, but you know, she's adaptable. (laughs) It was okay, but... English marriages in the 1980s. (laughs) (laughs) It was a career. It it did kill my Home Office career, which, which was a pity, but probably about time I got out anyway. Yeah, so you were at Temple for a while, and then you found basically the home where you were going to stay for your academic career. You moved up to Rutgers in New York. That was a financial thing. My oldest son got a place at uh, Princeton. Very cheap, I hear. They're almost giving it away there, aren't they? (laughs) And uh, I was pretty determined not to let him go because, you know, he can go to Temple for free. Yep, still can. Can, still can, yeah. Yeah, that's good. But anyway, at that time, I was quite friendly with Rudzinovitz. Very famous criminologist, yes. Right. But he moved to Philly uh, when his wife died, and he married a woman there who was a friend of Wolfgang. We used to go to their apartment in Rittenhouse Square for dinners quite regularly. And when I told them that what Henry had achieved, said, well, you know, we can't afford that. And they said, you must afford it. You've got to afford it. You will find the money. And they really bullied me to... (laughs) (laughs) To sending your kid to Princeton. Twisted your arm. Go to Princeton. Go on. (laughs) So he got to Princeton. And then his brother, who's a little bit younger, got into Cornell. You're hemorrhaging money at this point. Yes, yes. So I needed more money. So that's why I moved to Rutgers. I often think the only reason I got the deanship at that point, it was a dean's Mm -hmm. job, was that I hadn't been around long enough time in America academia to have got enough enemies. Right, yes. Well, especially as the field you're working in is, you know, still at the time, not popular. Yeah. I wouldn't even say the situation of crime prevention was not well respected. I think just people were very suspicious of it. Yes, they were. Because it was so different than what they were thinking about. And I think they were worried that it was just supporting the system. Yes, that's basically it. What was happening in terms of situational crime prevention around that time? Not very much. Only what I was doing and, you know, a few colleagues of mine. 
Were you worried about that? Were you worried that it just wasn't, the field wasn't environmental criminology and situational crime prevention wasn't going to take off? I thought it just needed more evidence showing the link between basically the environment and behavior. Right. Uh, you know, I thought in the long run it'll come right, but it hasn't really. I think it's recognized now, but it, they're never the most attended sessions at criminology conferences. Yeah. You know. yeah. How did you start your collaboration with Derek Cornish? Derek and I were at Bristol University together. Okay, way back in the day. Mm -hmm. He was actually a year ahead of me, but he had a motorcycle accident, and so he dropped back and joined the same cohort as I did. He was doing philosophy and English as his majors, and I was doing philosophy and psychology. And we just got to know each other and became mates, as it were. And I worked a lot with him. He's a very smart guy. And various things I've written, I couldn't have done without him. I mean, the work that you did together, you guys really founded the, the Rational Choice Perspective. Yes. Which is a, a, a linchpin. It's a huge part of how we think about opportunity reduction and crime prevention yes. worldwide now. We built that together between us. And he contributed just as much as I did. But he's one of those very bright people, you get them in academia, who just can't publish, not on their own. Yep. That role in academia, that necessity, it's not for everybody. And it's not an indication that people aren't bright. No, it is not. And a lot of incredibly bright, smart people do linger in places where... What is that uh, elegy written in a country churchyard by Thomas Gray? Full many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. (laughs) I had a classical education. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's probably for the best. Moving on. I'll definitely edit that out. (laughs) I know two lines of poetry there. Yeah. Well, Derek's like this. The committee sat down with him and said, you must stop working with Clark because most of your stuff is with him. And we don't know how much of it is him and how much of it is you. Oh, good grief. But it was a fantastic collaboration. You pioneered a core principle of opportunity theory. Yeah, but these people who were making the judgments were conventional academics. They were sociologists, which is worse. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) And, um, well, they didn't appreciate how clever he was. Right, right. So tell me, I mean, how would you sort of epitomize what the rational choice perspective is? Well, it, that's a good question. It's very difficult to answer. I would say something like, uh, it's an attempt to explain people's behavior by thinking very carefully about what they think they're doing and what they are trying to do. But often they're not aware of what are the forces acting on them and it's trying to fill out that uh, link as well as one can through doing um, studies to back up this idea. The notion that they, they're not independent from their environment. Yeah. They're, they're taking advantage of opportunities, but we can control, we can't control how they think, but we can control the opportunities that yes. are presented to people to commit Which crime. is the link with situational prevention. Yes. Right. I've wondered sometimes if this is why there's been less mainstream understanding of situational crime prevention, is that it doesn't come away with these nice, convenient, universal rules about human behavior. <laughs> Humans good. behave in this way, but it doesn't do that. No. It's much more specific. So, well, we can prevent crime at car parks, 
but how we do in parking lots, but how we do that is very different than how we prevent crime in in other places and yes. pubs and taverns. Yeah. And it's this very specific thing. And it, it lacks, there isn't a universal rule. There isn't an E equals MC no. squared. No. Yeah, I think that's got a lot to do with it. It's very hard to explain to people your point that preventing crime in a parking lot is very different from preventing a car being stolen generally. Right. It's a very different set of ideas. And I think it's that lack of generality that makes all of this stuff that I do a bit difficult to understand. Except, you know, when you go back to basics like opportunity matters. Thinking about situational crime prevention and the rational choice perspective, mm. where do you think have been the successes? I got very interested in suicide. From a research perspective, not as a yes. passing how to spend your weekend, yeah. yes, okay. But, uh, you probably read the British gas suicide story. The, the British coal gas story is yeah. famous, yes. Yeah. Sorry to interject and break the fourth wall, as it were, but even though I just said the British gas suicide story is famous, here's a brief summary in case you haven't heard of it. In the 1950s and 60s, a popular method to take one's own life in England and Wales was basically to stick your head in a gas oven and asphyxiate. It accounted for more than 40% of suicides. Between 1963 and 1975, suicides in most European countries increased, but in England and Wales it decreased substantially. This coincided with the progressive removal of the harmful component, carbon monoxide, from the UK's gas supply, effectively removing the gas oven as a suicide option. So even though people were still highly motivated, removal of an easy and accessible opportunity did not result in substantial displacement to other arguably more difficult or painful methods of suicide. Instead, it seemed to reduce the number of suicides in total. Ron and his co-author Pat Mayhew wrote, The conclusion is that blocking opportunities, even for deeply motivated acts, does not inevitably result in displacement. The implications for criminology were huge. It showed that changing a person's motivation did not have to be central to crime prevention. Instead, removing the opportunity or the situational means could be a mechanism for crime reduction. Thus was born situational crime control. Okay, back to Ron's story. I worked with Pat Mayhew, but nobody seemed to mind too much if Pat was doing it. Uh, a lot of people say to me, oh, I think that was a lovely paper, but of course they don't really mirror it in their work. Somehow they enjoyed reading it, but it doesn't add up to anything for them. Malcolm Gladwell, he has six of, of our graphs in his book. And I think you also probably don't give enough credit to there is a, a growth of environmental criminologists. And of course, we're not talking about people who care about oil spills in Alaska, but we're talking about criminology of the built environment and the wider system, the growth of crime science stems from your work. We wouldn't have crime science in a lot of departments without the rational choice perspective and Marcus Felsen's work on the routine activities theory. And we, this stuff has been driving crime science now as well. Yes, it is, isn't it? Because it applies to more than just the built environment. Yes. Any kinds of structures or environments, we can design in crime or we can design out crime. That, that I think is true. A few years ago, you won the Stockholm Award, you know, the Stockholm Symposium. That must have felt like some justification of the work. Yes, I mean, that's, that's a considerable recognition. 
Yes, I, I must admit I was very pleased to get that. It wouldn't have happened if uh, Mangai Natarajan hadn't put together a very good case for it, and she got a lot of people involved with that. So I, I was very pleased to get that, and I've never had any kind of recognition or reward from the ASC. No, and I've often pondered that. They, they, it is a very state organisation. Yeah. It's, it's quite surprising. It's the home of very safe, very traditional, very uninfluential criminology. Yep. Uh, Sorry, ASC, but that's the truth. There you go. It is. More recently, they sort of said, wouldn't you like to be a fellow or something like that? And I said, no, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm fine without it. Uh, and I am, of course, because the Stockholm thing is more important. And what's more, it comes with money. Oh, that, well, that's kind of handy, seeing as how your wonderful home in Sanibel got trashed by Hurricane Ian. Yes. Yeah, which is devastating because Sanibel's quite beautiful. Yep. I, I think what, what's nice to see is how many people have come from an environmental criminology, crime science kind of background who are now working in, in the practical field because they're, you know, they're working in government, they're working in police departments. I think that's been a plus, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes. Yes, I think it has. But academically, I don't think we've done ourselves a lot of good from the point of view of academics. What should we do differently? with more examples of the basic principles holding up. I wonder sometimes if it's, we've got lots of research and evidence. It doesn't mean necessarily that mainstream criminology is engaging with that evidence. Yeah. I sometimes wonder it's that it's not the lack of evidence, it's just they want to do it in these very narrow, defined ways that are incredibly difficult to change, whereas here's a way to make people safer, but this doesn't change the system, right? Because this really isn't working about the criminal justice system. Mm. This is about preventing people getting into the criminal justice system in the first place by just redesigning environments so that it's hard to commit crime. Mm. But that doesn't change the system, and I think that's possibly its lack of appeal. Maybe. But I don't know. I don't know either. Mm. I think a lot of people are still suspicious of situational crime prevention. They still think it's simple-minded and not really grappling with the things that matter in life. But perish the thought that people are less victimised by crime, eh? Yeah. <laughs> you recently published a book of successful case studies, Problem-Oriented Policing. It was edited by yourself and the marvellous Mike Scott down at Arizona State University in the Crime Science Series. It's a wonderful collection of chapters by some really great people involved in that. That must have been a lot of fun. It was very enjoyable. Uh, Mike was a tremendous person to work with. And one of the things I've learned working with practitioners over the years is they really appreciate case studies yes. because it becomes concrete to them rather than just sort of, here's some abstract ideas about how this might work. It's like, no, here's somebody actually really doing it in Cincinnati or yes. doing it in Vegas or, yeah. you know, in London. Yeah. Really nice piece of work. Problem on pleasing successful case studies. I'm now trying to write a book of the same type of successful case studies of situational prevention of suicide. And that's got to be something that's hugely important. I was actually teaching today, doing some training for some police officers, yeah. and I was talking about not just the British coal gas story, but also the changes to the Bloor Street viaduct in Toronto, yes. whereby, you know, using fencing, they went from 10 suicides a year to one suicide in 10 years. That's right, that's the sort of thing. I'm working with David Lester, do you know him? No. 
you know. I'm just not a very social guy. I don't know anybody. <laughs> anyway, he's, he's been at Stockton University now mm -hmm. all his life. Uh, he's, a, he's a Brit. I think he's got something like 3,000 publications, something like that, something colossal. Good grief. Does he sleep? Is he like a vampire and just keeps going through the night? Okay, now I'm feeling like an underachiever. Thanks for that. Yeah, great. <laughs> he writes a lot of very short papers. Blimey, if that was me, it'd be like a sentence long to be able to churn out that many. Yeah, he really has got something like 3,000 That's spectacular. All right, then. And he's at Stockton's New University, which is in Atlantic City. He's a very interesting guy. As I said, he's English. I seem to gravitate towards English people. Yeah, we kind of, kind of hang around together after a while, don't we? We have a shared sense of appreciating warm beer. <laughs> well, look, Ron, this has been lovely. Yeah, it's good. Thanks for uh, spending some time with me. I very much appreciate it. Not at all. You know, your work has uh, been hugely influential and has driven so much crime prevention. Even though underappreciated by mainstream criminology, there are a lot of people who are not victims of crime that would be otherwise, yes. who, uh, who don't know how much they really appreciate well, it. Well, you know, some of the people that, some criminologists actually practice situational crime prevention in their everyday lives, very much so. You find that they're, they're doing all the situational crime prevention measures they should if they want to protect themselves from crime. Right, but they just don't like to acknowledge it professionally. Right, or they don't even realize what they're doing. No, and that's the important thing about it, is it provides, I think, especially for people who are learning about crime prevention, it provides a structure and a framework mm. that once you learn about it, does feel like it's common sense, but that's the problem with common sense. There's no, it's not as common as people think it is, no. and you really need to think about it a bit yeah, more. Yeah, It's all yeah. good stuff. Well, you've made a marvellous contribution to the field, and so uh, we're very grateful. Thank you. This has been fun, Ron. Cheers. <laughs> Is it time for dinner now? Because I heard the microwave go. Well, I didn't know whether you were ready for any dinner, but I have got a small amount of chicken stew, typical English leftovers meal. Sheila, don't make me eat English food. All right, this I've learned after 20 years in America. It's my treat. We're going to the diner. Come on. <laughs> Fine, Sheila, we're not doing the English show. Get out of your slippers. Come on, we're going to the diner. The diner's pretty good. There you go. That was episode 62 of Reducing Crime, recorded in the wilds of New Jersey in January 2023. Subscribe at Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, or wherever you listen. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime, and I personally lurk at Jerry underscore Ratcliffe. Transcripts and Excel spreadsheets with multiple choice questions for every episode are available to instructors. Just ping me. Be safe, and best of luck.